This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, my name is Jordan Rich, and I'm honored to play a small part in the development of this podcast series. So, Bill, it's great to have you here, and uh, this is your chance to do something on this platform that uh, that you feel is very important. What's the mission statement for this series that you're putting out? It's seemingly a simple question. It's taken me forever to try to work my way through. But I think that the purpose of where I want to come from with, with this podcast is to engage people, enlighten people, educate people on all the topics that involve policing in particular and the entire criminal justice system in general. Um, because I do think that when all you get is a minute on the news about something, whether it's a trial, whether it's an investigation, um, uh, who's working on an investigation as far as, you know, forensic scientists, et cetera, um, it kind of gets lost because it goes by so fast. But I really want people to say, geez, I wonder what a forensic anthropologist does. I wonder how a DA prepares a case. I wonder how these guys come together and work together as a team, even though they're from several different jurisdictions. There's honestly no magic to any of it, it's, uh, and that's the enlightening part. We're all just regular people, and uh, we are skilled in our, our areas, and we're smart enough to know where we're not smart enough, and we bring in the people that are. So Right. There has been a lot of anti-police rhetoric in media and on uh, social platforms in the last five years, let's face it. Mm-hmm. And I know that every organization, every group of individuals has problems and people that need to be uh, addressed, but I think you're here to uh, counter some of that constant attack. No doubt about it. And it's been, I'm, I'm now in a position, I think, in life where I've, I'm established enough and I have credibility enough that I can talk of some of these things. And, and I, I, uh, I understand when law enforcement can't speak out. I understand that we cannot control um, the narrative all the time. Um, but, but that said, I think a podcast is the perfect vehicle to both be able to talk about, um, kind of join the narrative and, and show policing as, the, as it truly is and police officers as who they truly are. And, um, you know, agree with it, don't agree with it, but at least have a chance to hear the other side of the story, so to speak. Who's been controlling the narrative as you see it in the last several years, as oh, mentioned? Oh, boy. I, I would say... Um, more special interest groups than anything else who have an agenda and whether that is uh, an agenda about funding for their organization or it's an agenda just in general to try to get more, you know, more things out of the system, I guess I'd say. And I think there's a certain amount of vindictiveness in there with people that uh, for one reason or another in their lifetime haven't been crazy about police officers. But I also think so much of that opinion is misguided and what really troubles me through this whole thing, and I always will, is I was brought up, and particularly as a police officer, that you have to have a dialogue. You have to have a conversation to talk about things. And if you can't do that, nothing ever gets settled. And, you know, I, I put a couple of things on my blog a little while ago uh, about the same thing. But if people come to a table and they're not willing to sit and listen, um, and, and that's all sides. I'm not picking on one side or another. But we can't make any progress if we can't talk about it. That's a big part of a police officer's job is social interaction, hearing the problem, trying to come up with a solution, but keeping those communications open. Absolutely. There's, yeah. there's nothing more important in policing than to be able to have conversations. We don't learn if we don't listen. I always say when, when I'm teaching or when I was you know, doing detective work, nobody's ever learned anything by speaking. You learn by listening. So maybe the question you put out there, but you listen to the answer. And 
like I, I think way back when I went through the academy and I was a, a city kid, grew up in Dorchester, you know, kind of had that, I guess, a swagger about me that, that we do without realizing we have it. And I go to the academy and I'm with guys from all over the state and um, from small towns, from farmland, from, um, you know, play, that had never dealt with anybody in an urban setting. And we graduated on a Saturday and on Tuesday we were in the halls of South Boston High School during the busing crisis. Mm-hmm. And there were guys that had never, ever seen anything like that. And for me it was, I'm not going to say it was routine, but but it was, I, I understood the people, I understood, I understood the thinking. So there was a lot of learning on their part. And, and I'd say we were there for three years, and by the time three years was up, they, they were pretty educated to things. You mentioned it's one-sided in that police as a unit, as an organization, professionals, they cannot respond to every criticism and every attack. No. I mean, you're retired now, and mm-hmm. you've had the benefit of having all this wisdom and experience. So you look at this as an opportunity to answer some of those criticisms? A- no, absolutely. A- absolutely. And, 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 you know, not – I don't want to make it sound like it's this negative us against them because it's not. And I, what I want to come out of it is for people to realize – I'm a human being. You know, when I introduce myself, I don't say my name is so-and-so. I, I do say my name is Bill Powers. I don't say – I don't introduce myself by my profession. I don't introduce myself by, by my position. And that, that, strangely enough, that's very disarming to people. Like, oh, my God, he stuck his hand out and he shook my hand and, and I just committed a crime. But I need to have a conversation with that person or we need to have a conversation together to get to the bottom and, and get the factual truth. But if I come at him like, you know, I'm true so-and-so and that's why I'm here and, you know. You're going nowhere. And so we were never taught the way I'm saying it now. We were taught, you know, I'm two of ours and, you know, very disciplined and very, very orderly. And, and back in the 70s, that, that was fine. Where we are now in life, it's got to be a lot more um, give and take. It has to, I'm not going to say friendlier, but not antagonistic. In the course of the podcast, I know you're going to introduce the listeners to a lot of your colleagues, not only on the police forces, but also in the prosecutorial area, uh, investigative forensics and so forth. Mm-hmm. Why is that important to you, again, to share this this kind of camaraderie so that we can learn from this? Why is it so important? I'm going to refer to it as a Citizens Academy on steroids. Being in the organization I was in, community policing wasn't something that was necessarily important important to us because we're a statewide agency, a lot of highway work, a lot of that kind of stuff, where cities and towns really engaged more early on on community policing. And and I I don't just mean community relations where you send out the ice cream truck. I mean actually sitting down and and having dialogue with people um, and settling the problems within within that community. They would talk to me about having citizens' academies and how great they were. And because once people come in and they sit down and they listen to every working part of a police department, they go, oh, I, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't understand that. And maybe now that explains why. So it was kind of an opportunity for the police to explain, the people to listen, the people to ask questions, et cetera. The benefit to that, they would say, is when we're looking for uh, an increase in our budget because we want to buy certain equipment or pay raises or whatever the case may be, these were our, these were our advocates. These are the people that came forward on our behalf. So, you know, bringing in the forensic science. After I retired, I went to work um, at the BU School of Medicine and in the forensic department, and I don't have a scientific bone in my body. Or as I like to say, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I know the smart people. And, and so... We were, it was a brand new segment of the forensic sciences. It was a master's program. We had a piece of property out in a town in, in Metro West that we wanted to be able to do 
some practical experiences and some experiments and things like that. But everybody was a little bit nervous that why is the School of Medicine coming out to our town and what are they going to be doing? You know, we had a, a big sit down and how are we going to, what's the best approach and all that. And, and the thought came to my mind about the Citizens Academy. I said, why don't we do a Forensic Citizens Academy? Why don't we just open it up, you know, be as transparent, back when that word wasn't a word, um, as can be, and just show everybody who we are, what we do. And we designed a 10-week program with every week was a different forensic science, whether it was the medical examiner who came in or the ballisticians that came in or the forensic anthropologist or the odontologist. Each week we had a special guest and then with that went practical exercises. The first person to sign up was the editor and owner of the newspaper and I thought, we're cooked, we're cooked, <laughs> there's an agenda here, I, you know, I don't know. He became our biggest advocate in that town. He, every week, wrote an article about the thing, and he wrote about the, you know, the lecture, and he wrote about the practical exercises. He took pictures, and uh, we could only take 25 people at a time. <clears throat> that, pl- that When we put it out, we did it for, I think, seven years, uh, and the first couple of years we did it twice. That classroom filled, and everybody made it every single week. And at the end, um, they got a, uh, a T-shirt that said, I crossed the line um, with a, a yellow tape. You would have thought we gave them formal wear. They were so excited. Um, but then we had advocates. So anybody that was saying, what are you doing now? What are they doing here? Um, no, no, no. This is, we're a town about science. We're a town about, about education. What they're doing here is great. Yeah. So that's always stuck with me. You know, and again, I learned from other police chiefs in, in cities and towns. And so I kind of think there's a way we can apply that in this podcast as well. I mean, we can't do practical experiences, you know, exercises. We can do all the rest of Yeah, it. well, you're expanding the community to include all these people and, and offering an opportunity for us, the, the lay people, the citizenry, to understand what really goes on. But there's another aspect to the podcast, and that is you're going to be talking about, to, and with actual police officers, both past and present. Right. And I know that means a lot to you to mm-hmm. connect and offer them a voice, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. Share with us your thoughts on that. That's it. And I, unfortunately, I think most of them are probably going to be retired people, but they, we all have our thoughts. We all have our experiences. We came along at a time when, um, at, as you referenced earlier, until about five years ago, where there was a good relationship with people. I'm not saying everybody liked us, but, but there was a good relationship. And that suddenly turned so sour, so fast. And again, based on so much false information, you know, and it... I don't, I don't know where you can say it began, but let's just use Ferguson as an example. And all that came out of that, and when it came down to going to a jury, the jury said, there's no criminal offense here. Right. The officer was exonerated. He was threatened. His life was threatened, and he took action to protect so, himself. So the, the mantra that came out of that was, hands up, don't shoot, hands up, don't shoot. Never happened. Mm. He was reaching for his gun. They struggled for his gun, and that's how he got shot and killed. It's a bad ending, a real bad ending, but let's not— you know, take what you want to be the finish line and then turn the facts. Uh, and that's, we police officers have to deal in fact. We don't, when we write police reports, all we put in there is facts. We're not allowed to give an opinion in a police report. The facts will speak for themselves. And, and that's when you get a complaint for particular crimes, it's because you've presented the facts. Not, you know, not stuff you heard from imaginary people. Um, or people that you made up. It has to be factual. What is the danger if we don't address this? You're doing it on this podcast, but if it's not countered, ultimately, uh, we hear about police officers not responding to calls because they're really concerned that their jobs or their lives may be in jeopardy. There's a whole lot of things going on with people um, in law enforcement these days because, yes, there's a certain concern about being questioned about everything that they do. 
um, there is a concern um, that they could be charged with a crime. They could be charged with something. You know, there are um, – and it creates an, an issue where you're even nervous to do what you're doing. You, you, sp- you spend on those extra couple of seconds before you react to something, going through everything you were trained to. It, not that we don't – our training is embedded in us, but it still makes you pause. And in that pause, bad things can happen, and we don't want to have to have that pause. Um, is one. Um, the, the other is if we don't find a way to talk to each other, we're never going to progress. And, 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 and I divert a little bit, but if a DA says, I'm not prosecuting these 10 crimes, then why are we trying to work on those 10 crimes? Things that, you know, there's, you can go back to the Billy Bratton and, and others, school of broken windows, where it's when small things happen in communities if you don't address them right away, they become bigger things and bigger things, and then it's out of control. And there's a lot to be said about that, and a lot of it is, is academic, but it's something that a lot of departments practiced, particularly NYPD when he was there. And I'm, the gentleman's name escapes me, but if you recall, there was someone that they were telling not to sell cigarettes on the street, and it got out of hand, and he got tackled, and he got choked, and he, and he died. It was an awful situation. But as a result of that, the city of New York, the, the powers that be, the, 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 the elected officials, wiped out the whole broken windows. They react across the board uh, emotionally, and maybe it's for political reasons. And one of the things that fascinates me is, I I forget the number, but it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions. It's actually in the millions when you look at it over a year, Bill, of interactions between police officers on all levels and the public. Millions. I don't have the stats with me. I I meant to bring them, but they are. But you know, it's six figures, seven figures, eight figures. Oh, it's It's huge. I've heard anywhere from 30 to 60 million dollars, you know, million. million. And that suggests that when something happens of violent nature and it involves, let's say, a a racial incident blown out of proportion, it is infinitesimal when you compare it with these statistics. And you never hear that reported. Right. One-tenth of one percent of interactions between police and the public result in any sort of violence. You're right. No, we never read about it. We never hear about it. And so when everybody's standing there and, and pro athletes have on the back of my next, the my next, no, you're not going to be next because you're probably not going to have a bad interaction or a violent interaction with police. Um, it's not going to escalate into anything because I can show you where it happens 30 million times a year. And how often does that happen? Sounds to me that you're just asking for people to stop, take a breath and listen. Exactly. To the side of the argument that is never really heard. No, I think I just took 15 minutes saying what you said in three words. But yes, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, I know you have many, many plans for many, many offshoots and guests, and we'll talk further in the next episode about that. Safe to say uh, your curriculum vitae and your qualities and background uh, make you the perfect candidate for this. Are you up for the task? No, I am. I am. And, and I, I had written a couple of books and people, including my own daughters, were saying, Dad, you, you got to do a podcast. You really, you could do a great podcast. I, mean, I, was, I was all opposed to it. But as it's gone along and I've educated myself more, it's like, you know what? I can't sit and I can't rail and get upset about what's going on if I don't, if I don't jump into the conversation, if I don't explain things to people. And I am I think right now in my life in a, in a perfect place uh, to be able to do this. I've been involved in the, in the business for 50 years directly. And um, along the way, I picked up a bachelor's degree. I picked up a, a law degree. I've been teaching since the early 1980s, all criminal procedure and law classes. 
So I stay current with all that. I've got a great relationship with so many, you know, DAs and now judges that were young DAs when they came along, and now they're up in the appeals court. So having that opportunity, I don't want to say it uniquely positions me, because I can't stand that term when people use it all the time. Look, to be an expert witness, you have to show that you've got education, you've got training, and you've got practice. And then you can be qualified as an expert. And I would, I would say, without question, I meet all three of those criteria. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.